You are listening to the Center for Urban Research Teaching and Outreach's Curto Conversations podcast. In each episode, campus and community experts will highlight collaborations that contribute to the advancement of the human community. Marquette University is located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the traditional lands of Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee peoples along the southwest shores of Michigami, North America's largest system of freshwater lakes where the Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinnik rivers meet and the people of Wisconsin, Sovereign, Anishi, Nave, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Anita, and Mohican nations remain present. Welcome to today's Curdo Conversations. Today's conversation is concerning sentencing. I will be speaking with Professor Michael O'Hear from the law school, who has written several articles and some books on the topic. Michael, if perhaps you can talk a little bit more about you know your work and your research and your interests. And then we're going to get into the conversation about the Derek Chauvin case and the sentence it out in that case and use that as a a jumping off point to have a broader conversation about sentencing in Wisconsin and Minnesota Midwest, perhaps even the the U.S. generally. My name is Dr. Darren Wheelock and I am an associate professor in the Department of Social and Cultural Sciences. I'll just introduce myself. I am also the director of the Criminal Justice Data Analytics Program and the faculty liaison for the Educational Preparedness Program that seeks to educate currently and formerly incarcerated individuals. Michael, yeah, can you speak a bit about your research interests, classes you teach, or anything else that listeners might be interested in knowing? Sure. I uh, am in the law school, I'm a professor in the law school. I've been at Marquette for about 20 years. My teaching and, and research focuses on all aspects of criminal law and criminal procedure, but most especially sentencing, which is, I think, a very rich topic. Every jurisdiction in the United States has its own distinctive sentencing system. I initially began my research focusing for several years on the federal sentencing system, which is quite distinctive, and then turned my attention to Wisconsin state system, and I've written a number of articles and a book about the Wisconsin state sentencing system. And more recently, my research has turned from some traditional legal research into some more quantitative analysis of sentencing. And you, of course, Darren, have been my collaborator in that. And our work has particularly been focused on sentencing in Wisconsin for major homicide offenses. And we've been trying to unpack a little bit more about some of the variables that go into determining what those sentences are. Yeah, it's fascinating work, and I think there's a lot of material there to cover, and I'm looking forward to all our all the projects that we get out of this. So I'm wondering if you can perhaps discuss a little bit about what you know of the Derek Chauvin case and the sentencing and the sentence that was recently administered in that case, you know, uh, uh, again, to the extent that you are familiar with all those details. Yeah, sure. Well, Mr. Chauvin was convicted of the crime of second degree murder. And in the state of Minnesota, there's a maximum 40 year uh, prison term that he faced uh, for that. 
But judges in Minnesota, as in most U.S. jurisdictions in most cases, have some, uh, some discretion. So they can select normally a sentence that is less than the maximum. Now, in Minnesota, there are a set of sentencing guidelines that help to channel the judge's sentencing discretion. And in a, a case of second-degree murder, a defendant like Mr. Chauvin, that is to say without any uh, prior criminal convictions, under the guidelines would be subject to a presumptive sentence of 12 and a half years. The way the Minnesota sentencing law works is that judges are supposed to sentence at or close to the presumptive guideline sentence unless there are substantial or compelling reasons for sentencing either significantly above or below that presumptive sentence. Now, Mr. Chauvin actually got 22 and a half years, so that was a full decade above his presumptive sentence under the Minnesota Sentencing Guidelines. So the judge in that case was required to supply substantial and compelling reasons uh, for that sentence. And he specifically cited two aggravating factors in the case to justify that sentence. One was the abuse of a position of trust by the defendant. That is to say, his position as a police officer. So that was one important aggravating factor. The other was the particular cruelty of the crime. Obviously, any homicide offense will involve the death of the victim, but some, some deaths are relatively quick and painless. And as the whole world knows, Mr. Chauvin's uh, killing of uh, George Floyd was anything but quick and painless. It was protracted and, and tortuous. Um, so those were the two aggravating factors cited by the judge to uh, get to a sentence of 22 and a half years. Now, one other aspect about the Minnesota sentencing system that people should understand is that unlike in the majority of states, there is no opportunity for parole release. So some, some listeners may understand that uh, sometimes when the judge imposes a sentence, that's really only establishing an outer bound on the amount of time that will be spent in prison. But in Minnesota, there is no parole board that will release uh, Mr. Chauvin early. On the other hand, Minnesota does have something called good time or uh, credits for good behavior in prison, with good time assuming that uh, Mr. Chauvin behaves himself well in prison, he will be able to reduce his sentence length by about a third, which would get him down to about 15 years to release. Mm. So my understanding is that his defense counsel, or what will be his, his, his legal representation moving forward, is already seeking opportunities for appeal. Do you think that that added 10 years might be any grounds for a future appeal? Or do you think that, that, that the, the rationale, the legal rationale for that was pretty solid? Well, I think definitely that that would be an inviting target for an appeal because the Minnesota sentencing guidelines are supposed to mean something. Judges are supposed to stick with those presumptive sentences and they're discouraged from sentencing above or for that matter below the presumptive sentence. So uh, anytime there's a sentence that's outside of the presumptive sentencing range, there's a good chance that you're going to see an appeal. If it's below the 
prosecutor will appeal. If it's above, then the, then the defendant will appeal. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Mr. Chauvin will be able to have his sentence reversed on appeal. It will be up to the appellate court to decide whether the sentencing judge provided a sufficiently compelling justification. And I think there's a pretty good chance that this one will be affirmed on appeal because the uh, sentencing judge identified two factors, the abuse of a position of trust and particular cruelty, which are recognized in Minnesota law as permissible grounds for an above guideline sentence. Mm, mm, That's interesting. If that type of case were charged and prosecuted and ultimately a conviction was secured in Wisconsin, do you think that would have been about the similar length of time sentenced? Or do you think something, a case, a similar type of case may have actually, you know, led to a really drastically different kind of sentence if that case were yeah. occurring? So it's, it's very hard to tell. And that really is highlighting a key difference between the Wisconsin and Minnesota sentencing systems, which is that Unlike Minnesota, Wisconsin does not have any sentencing guidelines. So judges are really very free to go wherever they want with their sentences. In a case like this, this would probably, in Wisconsin, this probably would have been a conviction for a crime that we would call first-degree reckless homicide, which also has a maximum period of 40 years of initial confinement in prison. So a judge in Wisconsin would have a range of anything from zero to 40 years, and there's very little that would uh, prevent a a judge from going somewhere close to zero or going somewhere close to 40 years. I mean, it really could be just about anywhere in terms of the judge's authority. Now, you know, there's there's the legal authority And then there's also the question of sort of the real world politics of these things. The Chauvin case was extremely high profile. And if a police officer in Wisconsin were ever to be convicted of murdering a a civilian in the line of duty, I'm sure that would be an extremely high profile case here as well. And given the level of the likely level of public concern and anger, I think it's more likely that a Wisconsin judge would come closer to 40 years than zero years. And, you know, so I think it's entirely possible a Wisconsin judge might settle, you know, in a similar 20, 25 year range. But, you know, it's hard, hard to predict that with any great confidence at all, because we don't have sentencing guidelines. We don't have much effective appellate review of sentences in the state. And it's really a state with very wide open judicial discretion. Mm. Yeah, and you had mentioned this point earlier that sentencing laws vary so much from state to state. I think that's a really interesting idea because it seemed like once upon a time, one of the goals of criminal justice policy was a greater level of uniformity across sentences at some point. And it just, and I'm not sure if we ever quite got there. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if there's any other unique or distinctive features of sentencing in Wisconsin that you think are noteworthy. You know, I know that there's truth in sentencing is something that Wisconsin has yeah. that's fairly distinctive. I wonder if there's anything else that noticed in your research where you're like, yeah, there's not a lot of states that do it the way that Wisconsin does it. 
Well, I think I think you've alluded to the big thing, which is truth and sentencing. Wisconsin really has a an unusual degree of rigidity to the sentences. So, for the from the judge's standpoint, everything is just wide open in Wisconsin. The judge has a huge amount of freedom to do whatever he or she wants to do with the sentence. But then, once that sentence is imposed, I mean, it's pretty well set in stone in in Wisconsin. We do not have uh, parole release here. So, you know, except for some prisoners who were sentenced under the old law and are still in prison, you know, serving pre-truth and sentencing sentences. You know, other than those prisoners, you know, everybody getting sentenced in Wisconsin today is going to uh, have to serve that sentence in full. There's no possibility for parole release. And moreover, Wisconsin does not have good time. I mentioned that earlier in uh, Minnesota through good behavior in prison. A, uh, an inmate might reduce the prison or the uh, sentence length by about a third. That's very common in other states as well, but we do not have that in Wisconsin. So uh, here, to a you know perhaps fairly unique extent nationally, the sentence that the judge imposes is the sentence that the defendant will serve. Yeah, that that is really interesting because I know from my readings, a lot of sentence and actual time served can be a function of prosecutorial discretion and char- crime charged yeah. sentencing guidelines. But yeah. in Wisconsin, without sentence guidelines, it's judicial discretion, right? And so yeah. it's just kind of shifting who gets to decide what that what that sentence might look like, which I think right. is, is, is really um, interesting. So in the last podcast with Dr. Megan Strohschein, we spoke a bit about how exceptional rare it is to see police officers get charged and convicted for use of force or use of lethal force. I'm wondering from your take in studying the law and as a law professor, what are some of the courtroom elements or the legal elements that make prosecuting, charge, and convicting these cases so difficult and or rare? Yeah, well, the, these cases usually involve ultimately a, a, a judgment call about whether the police officer ought to be charged and convicted and sentenced. With a lot of homicide cases, the the case is really just all about a straightforward factual question. You know, was the defendant the person who killed the victim? You know, was it the defendant who who pulled the trigger? Was it this person or someone else? Was it this person or someone else who, you know, poured the poison in the victim's drink or whatever. But in these police cases, there's usually no question that the police officer is the person who caused the victim's death. And the real issues are judgment calls about the significance of that killing. We know the police officer killed this person, but did the police officer have an intent to kill? Did the police officer have an adequate justification for the killing? And oftentimes that's getting into issues of self-defense. You know, these are are not objective questions of fact. These really mm. require judgment calls to be made. For instance, with self-defense, the, the legal standard is one of reasonableness. You know, did the person who killed allegedly in self-defense act reasonably or not? That's not an objective question. It's a judgment call. And I think that as these judgment calls get made, they are inevitably affected by perceptions of character 
you know, whether you're talking about the prosecutor deciding to charge or jury, for instance, deciding to convict, a, a lot of what's going to be playing, if nothing else, in the background of the decision maker's mind will be, was the killer, was, is this somebody who's a good character, somebody with a good character, somebody with a bad character? Is the, is the victim somebody who's a bad character? Mm. And these assessments of, of victim and perpetrator character I think can exert a lot of influence over the ultimate decisions of, you know, things like reasonability. So, you know, if you perceive the perpetrator to be somebody who's basically a good person, you're more likely to conclude that their actions on the occasion in question were reasonable actions. I think the dynamic that comes into play with police cases in particular is that by and large, I'm certainly not saying everybody, but by and large, uh, Americans have favorable attitudes towards the police and are probably willing to assume that most police officers are, are good people, fundamentally good people, people of good character, and that people who find themselves attracting police attention, people who find themselves under arrest are probably bad people, probably people who have bad character, who probably did something wrong to warrant whatever it is that, that happened to them. So that, I mean, that's my sense of, of the dynamic that plays out in a lot of these cases, both, you know, from the standpoint of the prosecutor's decision about whether to charge or not, and then ultimately a decision by a judge or jury about conviction or about sentencing, is uh, that these cases are you know, very influenced by the kind of general presumption that most people seem to have that police are, are good, they're there to help us, they're heroic even, and that, and that uh, people who um, find themselves entangled with the law are, uh, are not good people and probably have done something to deserve whatever bad thing has happened to them. Yeah, I've, I've also heard of the courtroom relationships explanation, and I don't know how how valid that is, that, you know, you're essentially talking about people who are, in essence, co-workers prosecuting each other. Yeah, uh, right. And, and also there's, there's the standard of when law enforcement officers can reasonably use lethal force, I thought has been really interesting, right? The idea that if a law enforcement officer fears for his or her safety, that's the threshold when in essence that, you know, that's not necessarily the threshold that anybody can use to use lethal force, right? The lethal force presumably is something that you need, you know, some level of justif legal justification to, to, to use. Yeah, I, I, it, it is a, it's, it's an interesting legal question. And I, I, I am, I'm fascinated by, you know, how these cases unfold because in the Derek Chauvin case, the evidence in that case or the factors in the, in, the, in, the, in the factual circumstances of that case were fairly exceptional. We had a long video of the individual kneeling on his neck. We had the individual like speaking and, and like, you know, literally begging for help. And then he becomes lifeless. Right. So we see kind of like the moment at which, you know, George Floyd's life likely expires. So there is like Mo like many cases may not have all those elements. Right. And so, yes, right, Derek Chauvin was ultimately tried and convicted, but that seems like that's a really rare subset of cases that have all of those components to them. 
-hmm. And minus those components, you know, you start wondering if, you know, you, 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 if you would get, uh, if you would have gotten a conviction in the resulting sentence, you know, especially the, the young girl that took that video recording, you wonder if you remove that video recording and that video recording does not become something that everyone now probably has seen at least once, or at least most of us have seen at least once, does, you know, does the case result in the outcome that it resulted in? Yeah, I, I think those are really interesting questions. So Wisconsin law mandates that in the event of the death of an individual as a result of an action or inaction by a law enforcement officer, the ensuing investigation must be conducted by an investigative team from an independent agency. Do you know if that specific provision is, is unique at all, or is, or is that fairly common now? I don't, I don't know how unique that is, actually. I, I'm sure it's not com completely unique, but I don't, I don't know if at this point that is the norm. It seems pretty kind of self-evident that that should be the practice, <laughs> yeah. that uh, you're not going to have a, a very legitimate investigation if colleagues are investigating one another. So it seems like uh, like a kind of a no-brainer, uh, minimal reform to deal with some of the concerns in this area. But but I don't I don't I don't know how widespread that reform is at this point. Yeah, because I'm wondering if if that because from my understanding that that's not not I, I don't know and and perhaps you know more about this. But you know how long that that provision has been in place? Because if it's a recent thing, I'm wondering if we can you know, determine if something like that has brought a, brought out greater accountability, greater transparency, mm -hmm. or if in fact, not that much has changed due to that change, due to that specific provision. I think, I think that is a, maybe about a decade old. It's, it's not something that's been there forever and ever. Yeah, I suppose you could try to determine if there have been practical consequences to this change, but it would be, I mean, it's hard to measure, right? Like, how would you measure whether there's more accountability or not. Yeah. Um, it does seem to me that whoever is doing the investigation that 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 there are a couple of concerns there there are a couple of concerns that are out there that are not really changed by what agency is doing the investigation, I guess. And you know, one of them is that it seems like these processes drag on for a very long period of time. Mm. That may that may cast a bit of a shadow on the legitimacy of the process because I think people are, are accustomed to how the process normally works, which is, you know, if the police know who did it, uh, if that's, if that's not, there's not an issue of, you know, somebody's run away and the police can't locate them, you know, if yeah. the police know who's done it, they're going to be arrested promptly and they're going to be charged within, you know, 24, 48 hours tops. And the process is going to take off from there. But with these police cases, uh, it seems like the investigations routinely take several weeks, if not months, to complete. And you know, there's this long period of time where the officer is not in custody, is not facing charges, and you just don't know what's what's going to happen, right? And then at the end of the day, there's the substance of the decision, which matters a lot. Yeah. Right. So it doesn't matter how neutral the process appears to be in these kind of formalistic ways, if police officers at the end of the day just aren't being charged um, when the public or, or large segments of the public seem to think that they ought to be charged. Yeah. Yeah. 
and based on you know some of the work we've done, those those perceptions of justice issues can be really important, right? And can be really influential in changing people's trust in the system. Yeah. Just law, right? Uh, I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about the problem of equity or inequity. The criminal justice system is one of those institutions that, you know, we can look at policing, right? And that oftentimes gets the most attention when you have videos that circulate of what happened in the George Floyd case. We don't get necessarily those kinds of videos of the, the courtroom, right? That that kind of shocked the conscience, if you will. Right. Right. And I'm wondering, but, you know, and, and, you know, you and I have written about this, but I'm wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit about, you know, the research concerning the inequity of the, of the court phase and sentencing, because something that I've noticed from that body of work is it's, is that it's difficult to find really consistent patterns, right? Mm. The consistency is in the inconsistency of findings, if anything. Mm. And I'm wondering, especially when you start talking about the role of race, ethnicity, social class, gender, kind of what we identify as like the sociological drivers of inequality within that system. Yeah. And I'm wondering from your view, what are some of the reasons why you think there's so much inconsistency in the findings, right? Is it is it jurisdictional issues as we talked about because sensing itself changes so much from jurisdiction to jurisdiction? Perhaps studies design, perhaps we need to like figure out better better ways to kind of collect data and try to understand what's happening. You're right. There is there there are a lot of varied findings. And this is been, you know, as you know, this topic has been absolutely studied to death for decades. Sociologists and others have been really trying to zero in on the role of race at sentencing for a for a very long time. And some studies find racial effects, some studies don't find racial effects. I you know, one pattern that that I think is evident though in some of these studies, and that makes a lot of sense to me, is that race effects seem more consistently found when you are looking at relatively less serious cases, right? And a, a lot of the research has focused on homicide cases or death penalty cases. And in those kinds of cases, uh, those race effects are elusive. You know, some studies find them, but they're not, they're certainly not consistently found. But if you, if you look at less serious cases where, you know, the judge might be kind of on the borderline between probation versus jail for a defendant, in those cases, you are more consistently seeing researchers find small but statistically significant race effects. And, and that makes a lot of sense to me because that jibes with my more general understanding about the role of stereotypes and implicit bias in human decision-making. We all have all kinds of decisions and judgments that we have to make in our lives all the time, and there's no way that we have the cognitive resources to engage in careful deliberation every time we have some kind of a judgment to make in our lives. So we develop these cognitive shortcuts to help us make the vast majority of relatively minor decisions in our lives without much effort. And that's where implicit bias, where unconscious stereotypes can really come into play when we're doing sort of quick and dirty decision making. But those, those um, kinds of cognitive shortcuts are less likely to control decision making on more important things that we really 
care about. And, I, you know, as I think about the criminal justice system, you've got, you know, murder cases and other super serious cases that judges and lawyers are going to put a lot of effort into uh, when it comes to selecting a sentence. And then you've got the vast majority of low-level cases. You know, most cases are misdemeanor cases in the criminal justice system. The, the very large majority of cases are misdemeanor cases. And most felony cases are relatively low-level felonies. And, you know, particularly in a busy uh, urban courtroom, the judges and lawyers have to process a huge number of cases very quickly. They do not have the time and, and energy to put a huge amount of deliberative effort into selecting a sentence in, um, in the, this great number of routine cases. So it, it does make sense to me that it's more likely for sentencing in these lower level cases to be influenced by implicit bias, you know, which again is just that kind of basic cognitive shortcut sort of thinking that we do in our day-to-day -day lives all the time with routine low-level decisions that we have to make. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's really important and, and interesting because, as you mentioned, most cases that are going through the system are not homicides. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that, you know, there's that these cognitive shortcuts are being made with, you know, many of those low-level types of uh, cases that get processed. One of the takeaways for me for George Floyd's death and Derek Chauvin's conviction and ultimate sentencing, ultimately his sentencing, is that it seemed to increase the volume on the public calls for criminal justice reform. And in some cases, more than reform, right? Uh, defund the police and those types of calls to me is, is a bit even more transformational than just reform. Even though much of the focuses on policing you know, we know through research that there's problems throughout the system, including the courts and including the law itself. And I'm wondering if there's any low-hanging fruit for like policy changes that you think could have widespread public support, you know, or widespread support amongst courtroom actors. In your view, are, are there just some really obvious, like, like fairly, you know? Um, quote unquote, I don't want to say easy, but you know, those those ones that could have really widespread support in terms of policy like changes we could do. Yeah, I wish that I felt confident that there were some great reforms out there that, you know, would just kind of happen because they're so clearly the right thing to do. But, you know, I think we really run into two major impediments to reform. One is the extreme partisanship of our current political environment, which makes it very hard to get anything done in states that are divided, like Wisconsin is, with you know, one party controlling the governorship and the other party the legislature, or to get things done in the U.S. Congress, where Republicans have that powerful filibuster ability in the Senate. So, yeah, I think the partisanship is a huge issue. I think there's also a big problem with, or a big uh, obstacle in the form of uh, just, you know, institutional inertia within our criminal justice agencies and our courts, you know, the, the courts, the prosecutor offices, public defender offices, Department of Corrections. I mean, these are all agencies that are very busy and overwhelmed with all that they're asked to do, and uh, they're not adequately um, supported with the kind of resources that they need. And you know, I think that tends to promote uh, a, a, a culture of, you know, inertia. Let's let's stick with what we're doing. We don't have the time and energy to to uh, uh, pursue 
uh, changes in the in the system. You know, there are some things that I think should be low hanging fruit in a you know maybe a, a world where partisanship wasn't so ingrained, where inertial tendencies weren't so strong in in the system. One is is one that I mentioned earlier, which is um, good time prisoners, slightly more than half the states, including Minnesota, as I mentioned earlier, have good time, which creates an incentive for good behavior in, in prison. And uh, there's been research that shows that uh, good time programs lead to, indeed, uh, fewer disciplinary infractions in, in prison and lower recidivism rates for people once they're released. You know, I, I happen to think good time uh, would be an excellent thing for Wisconsin to adopt that would uh, predictably uh, lead to some significant reductions in the size of our prison population and, and I think would do it in ways that would be consistent with public safety. But, you know, I've been kind of pushing good time uh, here in Wisconsin for about a decade now, and I, I have yet to hear a good argument against it, but I also have yet to have any sense of movement on that front. And there have been bills in the, uh, in the, in the state legislature but uh, for adopting good time. Uh, but they've gotten absolutely nowhere. Mm, that's too bad. And, and just uh, to clarify, instilling good time would also require rethinking the truth and sentencing laws, then, I, I would imagine, right? Like the two are kind of coupled. Is, is that correct? In a sense. I mean, there are a lot of states that have truth and sentencing laws that have good time. Mm. Right? So I guess you could think about the definiteness of the sentence as being sort of along a spectrum Wisconsin has really kind of gone for the idea that we have to have 100% certainty, you know, at the time that the sentence is imposed, how much this defendant is going to spend in prison. There are very few, if any, other states that have been so demanding uh, in, in uh, needing to have 100% certainty. So, you know, Minnesota has two-thirds certainty. The final third of the prison term is dependent on the uh, good behavior of the inmate. Practically every other state has some kind of variability in the prison term. And, you know, again, there's a range there. It could be 10%, some states it's 50%, some states it's two-thirds or more. So, you know, there's a whole spectrum there. Most states have truth and sentencing laws, and most of those truth and sentencing laws preserve some variability at the end of the sentence to create incentives for good behavior in prison and engagement with rehabilitative programming in prison. And just to clarify, truth and sentencing laws were, uh, that was a, uh, that, was, that was one of the prized pieces of legislation under Governor Tommy Thompson's administration, was it not? Yeah, that, certainly. I mean, that was one of his... Late 90s, right? Yeah, 90s. signature, you know, criminal justice reforms. Yeah, definitely. It was adopted in uh, 98, went into effect at the end of uh, 99, it uh, had overwhelming bipartisan support. So, you know, we can't put this entirely in the lap of uh, Governor Thompson because it was also strongly supported by then Democratic Attorney General uh, James Doyle, who later become, became governor himself and was uh, supported by the great majority of Democratic legislators at the time. Mm, yeah. I I'm wondering if there's what your view is on, because it, you, you you create a or you depict a a fairly grim picture of the possibility for reform because right this kind of, this piece of the conversation started with calls for reform 
right? I, I, a lot of people have talked to, and this is even people, I've, you know, I have contacts that work in criminal justice, and many of them want to see a better system, right? It's not just the public, it's actual practitioners themselves feel like the system can be better. But what you're suggesting is a scenario in which changes are going to be really unlikely or hard to come by. Yeah. And I'm wondering if there's space for something perhaps like judicial activism. Because you, you created this scenario, right, where judges have this, this enormous amount of discretion in this state. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, then the judge could come in and just say, you know what, this is what my values or the values of the community I'm representing you know, want to see when I start sentencing people in my court. I'm wondering if there's any possibility for something like that, right? Maybe if it's not state-level sentencing reform, if there's something that maybe we can see at an individual level. Yeah, I mean, judges certainly have a lot of a lot of power in the state. There's no question about it at sentencing level. The individual trial court judge in the state who wants to do things differently has has some real capacity to do that. Now, that's only going to bring about change in one courtroom out of the you know 500 or so that we have in the state. Judges have limited resources, so that means that you know that needs to be appreciated. Like the you know judge might be in principle, deeply committed to evidence-based sentencing practices, right? Like, I really want to do what the research says is the right thing to do with sentencing, but it's not like the judge has, you know, a research staff on hand (laughs) who can be dedicated to figuring out what the best what the best evidence is showing. So, you know, judges have limited resources and they have heavy dockets of cases to juggle as well. So, you know, a lot of demands on the judge's time. And then, of course, the, the you know, the gorilla in the room, when you talk about the, um, the judges exercising their discretion in more progressive ways, if that's, you know, to attach a political label to it, if that's what we're contemplating here, more progressive sentencing by judges, you know, the gorilla in the room is the fact that we have an elected judiciary. There is a very clear and compelling track record in the state of judges losing office or being defeated in, in, in campaigns for higher office based on attack ads that depict them as being too lenient in their sentencing. I mean, this is a very politically sensitive area for judges, sentencing. In, in fact, I think that this is probably the single most politically sensitive area for a judge, you know, and all the things that a judge might do. It's the sentencing decisions that create the greatest political peril for the judge. And so, you know, to be realistic about this, you know, judges have to keep that in mind. Sure. And and that will be a practical constraint. Yeah. I, I wonder if if we can see enough a sh- enough of a shift in the electorate, right, to want to see a different kind of system that might lead to judges making different choices because it, what you're describing is more of a ground up, or, right, as that judges are responsible to their electorate. Yeah. Well, electorate starts wanting different things, then perhaps that, what, that can move that needle. And this goes to the final point I wanted to discuss is in the past podcast I had with Dr. Strohshine on policing, she mentioned that some of the 
strongest barriers to policing reform is one police union she said are really strong and oftentimes they'll they are they're obstructionists to any real meaningful reform but two she mentioned a similar idea that you touched on which is culture mm. right she, she she described that there's a policing culture that isn't all that interested in being reflexive and taking a look at itself in these mm-hmm. right critical self-critical kind of ways um and you mentioned also that there's a culture of like the law and of the courtroom and i'm wondering if and, and just in final closing if perhaps there's any thoughts on the culture presumably wasn't always the way that it currently is right change at some sort at some time has happened right and i'm wondering how might we learn lessons from the past that kind of rethink like if we are going to make progress on these types of issues, how do we address that culture part of it? Is there a way to do that in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a real challenge that I, I think about, you know, myself some, and I don't have great answers for it. I guess one reason that 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 that's one that I really spend some time thinking about, though, is because it seems to me that those of us involved in legal education might have a role to play. I mean, after all, everybody who is going to work in a prosecutor's office has been to a law school, has spent three years in a law school. Uh, Everybody donning their robes as a judge has the experience of having been a law student. You know, I think we have some ability in legal education to possibly promote more self-reflection among legal practitioners about what they are doing and the, the ethical content about what they are doing. And I think we may possibly have a role to play in encouraging or pushing the legal profession to be more oriented than it is now towards research and making use of um, research in order to improve outcomes in the legal system. You know, we may have some some role to play in that. Although I think you know the the issues here are probably deeper than than we can address simply through you know changing what we're doing in law schools. Because because of course we've got you know all kinds of other things to do in law school as well besides try to address some of these specific issues relating to the way the criminal justice system operates. Does the Marquette Law School curriculum have like, you know, courses that might perhaps focus on empathy or reflection or ethics or those. I would, I would imagine there's some there's some courses that you have that, that touch yeah, on those topics. We do, we do have we have ethical uh, we have courses on, on professional ethics, certainly. Yeah. And, and a lot of our students who go into work after graduation in the criminal justice system do internships in the criminal justice system while they're still students. And, you know, we have strong programs there that try to inculcate um, the ethical aspects of of that work for students while they are having their initial experiences as as uh, legal practitioners in the in the system. So, you know, we, we have some of those things, certainly. But that's that's also something that all of us, though, who are te- teaching in the law school could probably do well to keep in mind in, yeah. in all of the classes we're teaching. So in other words, 
you know, I, I don't think it's enough just to have a, an ethics class, right? Like I think we should be probably talking, and we to some extent do, uh, we should probably be talking about ethics in all of our classes. And, you know, as I said, I mean, we kind of do already, but we could probably do even more of it. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and we'll end on that point. Thanks so much, Michael. I appreciate this conversation. I thought it was really interesting and hopefully our listeners thought the same. And that will conclude today's podcast. Okay, thank you, Darren. Thank you for listening to this episode of Quirtual Conversations. You can learn more about this podcast and the work being done with our partners by visiting the Center for Urban Research, Teaching, and Outreach website at marquette.edu. You can reach the podcast via email at urbancenter at marquette.edu. Music for this episode is by Ronald E. Johnson, whose music can be found at Choco Geek on SoundCloud.